and welcome to this Expert Insights show. I'm Donna Hansen. Our Expert Insights show is designed to give professionals access to the latest trends, ideas, philosophies and approaches that impact on productivity, performance and achievement, both in business and personally. We know that these days it's often hard to find time to step outside your world and explore what's happening in other organisations. Our Expert Insights shows are designed to provide you with concise information on topics relevant to you on a regular basis in a format that maximises your time, keeps you up to date with current trends. In this Expert Insights show, we speak with Tasha Broomhall, a specialist in mental health in the workplace. But before we say hi, let me tell you a little bit about her. Tasha is the Director and Lead Facilitator for Blooming Minds. She's been providing mental health and wellbeing training programs throughout Australia for more than 16 years. She holds a Principal Master Trainer status from the MHFA, I have to say that really slowly, Mental Health First Aid Australia program. She has delivered this renowned course to more than 200 groups over the last 11 years, including teachers, psychiatric nurses, HR personnel, mental health consumers and carers, aged care staff, disability staff, vocational rehabilitation providers, case managers and various government departments. Tasha's work has been recognised with the ICCWA Suicide Prevention Award in Western Australia and recently as a finalist in the National Life Awards for Excellence in Suicide Prevention. Tasha has published a number of books focused on both personal and workplace mental health, including her latest entitled Bloom at Work, a mental health guide for leaders. And she's currently completing her Masters of Mental Health Psychology. Welcome, Tasha. Thanks, Donna. Oh, it's it's good to be able to have a conversation around this, this uh, mental health space, given 10, maybe 15 years ago, this was sort of a taboo subject, wasn't it? Absolutely. So Blooming Minds started 10 years ago and it was a very different journey to get these conversations in workplaces at that point than what we have today, for sure. I imagine it's much easier now than it was way back then. But hey, let's uh, let's get on to what we want to talk about today because I'm sure that we're going to, the journey and everything is going to unfold and, and we're all going to walk away uh, in such a, a much better place thinking about how our mental health impacts on our personal and our organisation's productivity. Um, Look, Tasha, before we get started, can I first ask, how did you come to be working in this space? I'm, I'm guessing you didn't leave um, kindergarten and go, oh, I'd like to work in the mental health space. No, not at kindergarten, for sure. Um, I think back in kindergarten, I still was just focused on talking a lot. Um, so probably there were some, some precursive signs there. Um, I did want to study psychology at school, though, and when I you know, first embarked in my career, I first studied disability and then psychology and started working in a mental health employment service here in WA. It was the only psychiatric specific employment service in the state at the time. And that was a huge eye opener, a huge experience to see. Really, um, what I'd learned at uni wasn't really relevant to what I was seeing in the workplace and in the real world. And it was such a fabulous opportunity to meet people from a young guy who 
collected trolleys at a local shopping centre who was living with schizophrenia through to the general manager of a hotel chain who was living with bipolar disorder and really understanding the complexities of mental health issues and that lived experience yet understanding it from the perspective of people who were recovering from their mental health issues and who were, you know, really leading the lives that, that they chose and, and meeting the goals that were relevant and important to them and that it wasn't just a, a case of people becoming unwell and, and being in that, that illness medical model, but these were people out there working, having a really good go at life, doing the things that were important to them and in my role of being able to support them with that, I learned so much. Um, when I left that workplace, I then started looking at what I wanted to do next and I decided that I didn't want to just be working in that illness space, I wanted to be working in mental health more broadly. So when I started Blooming Minds, my goal was how do we give people the skills to recognise and support mental health issues in themselves and others, but also how do we give them really importantly, the capacity to build their mental health proactively so that we can keep more people well rather than just waiting to respond when they're unwell. Mm. So, uh, well, that's that's really interesting and certainly the, um, I'd like to elaborate a little later on around uh, mental health in the workplace and things like what you said about the, the gentleman that was in a role that had bipolar and I really resonated with the fact that that your approach to all of this is is proactive and not reactive I think all too often organizations are so busy uh, that sometimes things get put on the back burner and I guess mental health is a topic of great interest in the workplace today why do you think it's come to the fore sort of now more so than like 10 years ago when it when it actually you know wasn't something that we we talked about or explored what do you think there's been a trigger or what's what's made organizations consider this as as a priority item I think it's progressed from that wider community base. So, you know, 20 years ago, we weren't having such open conversations about mental health issues in our communities. And we've really seen that improve and, and um, expand in that time period. So we've had some pretty big, sexy PR campaigns here in Australia talking to us about mental health issues and encouraging people to get help for mental health issues, all because of you know, government um, public health campaigns that were looking at how do we prevent suicide, how do we actually help people to get the help that they need and, and stigma busting was a key component of that. And as often happens, once something becomes a hot topic in the community, that then translates into the workplace because the workplace is just a subset of the community. And so what we found over the last five years in particular is more and more companies are interested in understanding, well, how does this mental health issues affect us in the workplace? We've got decreased stigma in general in the community, so people are maybe a little bit more willing to disclose things, but then how on earth do we respond to it? What do we need to do about it? So we're at a really interesting point at the moment, I think, where we've got a high level of awareness of mental health issues and even a high level of awareness of its relevance in the workplace. We need to now take a really big step towards ensuring we have the skills to recognise and respond to it. And that's that's probably um, reflective of the wider society as well. We have the awareness, but we're not necessarily very good at having the conversations yet. I also think to elaborate a little further, I think when you say there's a higher awareness and importance, you know, we understand its relevance, 
it, it must be scary for organisations when they're confronted with maybe a scenario in their workplace where something's happened that's, that's really brought this to a much higher level than just an awareness. And they often find that the people in the organisation will often find, I imagine, that they're just not equipped either from a resource perspective or um, a cap- capability internally to be able to, to manage and deal with this. Would that be, would that be an accurate statement? Absolutely correct. So whether I'm working with lawyers or on a mine site or yesterday afternoon with environmental scientists, what we find is that the most common statement from our course participants and and from our clients is, I see that there's a need, I can see this person struggling, how on earth do I deal with it? What do I say to them? I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so at the risk of making a mistake, a lot of people stick their head in the sand or just, you know, stand idly on the side not saying anything. And sometimes that can make situations much worse. It can make the person feel much more isolated and can certainly open the organisation up to greater risk in terms of not having met their responsibilities. So we do see a lot of organisations who are becoming very aware of their obligations from an health and safety perspective around mental health issues and really keen to learn what are the frameworks that we need to put in place? What are the skills we need to have to, one, minimise the risks, but, two, to be able to respond to them appropriately and lawfully when they do do come up? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's it, it's really interesting because um, it's just a matter of, I guess, having a plan and a strategy, and that's an evolution because you can't always preempt the types of scenarios, but I'm, I'm guessing from your experience, and I know we're slightly digressing here, but I'm guessing from your experience, there's probably um, key industry groups or sectors that are perhaps more prone to mental health issues than others. Would, would that be fair? Look, there certainly are some studies that show certain professions have higher rates of mental health issues and and higher rates of distress, such as um, doctors, who I've been doing a bit of work with medical professionals recently as part of my master's program and really seeing some quite shocking statistics there in terms of prevalence of mental health issues, but more importantly, stigma and self-stigma as a barrier from them getting help. Um, we've had quite a high awareness for a long while in this country now about higher levels of depression amongst lawyers, high rates of anxiety and depression amongst accountants. Um, I do a lot of work in mine sites here in Western Australia and across Australia, and we see that often there might be some issues with particularly FIFO workers and some of the conditions people are under living away from home for a couple of weeks and and um, then flying back for maybe a week and, and the impacts that has on sense of belonging and family connectivity, etc. So there certainly are some some patterns that we see, but really my fundamental belief is that mental health is part of health. So if you employ people, then it's relevant for you to have an understanding of how those people might be affected by mental health issues. Given we know that one in five of us will have a mental illness every year and up to half of us in our lifetime will have a mental illness, this is not just about other people. This is just Mm. the people currently in your workplace. Mm. Okay, so um, I know we've touched on this this next question about why managing our own or our team or our organisation's mental health is important. So we've just touched on that because uh, you you spoke about that from an obligation perspective. So um, I'm imagining by that you mean, you know, uh, opening themselves up to potential litigation. Um, But why else 
is is mental health or managing mental health in your organisation? Why is it so important? Well, the main reason clients start talking with us is because of the costs and because of their fears of meeting their obligations. So current Australian data tells us that we lose 6 million days to absenteeism every year directly related to mental health issues and a further 12 million days are lost to presenteeism, which is just huge. It's scary. Scary statistics. Absolutely, and often it's not disclosed that that's why the person's away. And if this is a pattern of the person being away or a person not performing, then the organisation has some obligations to not discriminate against an employee with mental illness. But if they have a a workplace culture where it's not, the employee doesn't feel safe to disclose what's going on and their mental health issues, then there can be a real sticking point there where the organisation needs to manage their obligations to the employee, but also importantly, their business needs. They need to be able to keep operating as an entity and we need them to have the skills to be able to, one, create that environment where they can make it socially safe for employees to acknowledge if something's going on that they need some support with, but also to ensure that their leaders in workplaces have the skills to have those conversations. If we're thinking about obligations other than not discriminating, the other big area that organisations have obligations around that sometimes they misstep in is around privacy obligations. So an employee's private mental health um, information is not allowed to be shared without their consent unless it's needed to be shared. So, you know, there are restrictions around you can't just tell everyone, well, Jim's only working a three-day week now because he's got depression and he needs some treatment. You'd have to work with Jim about what that disclosure might look like and if it's obvious to others and Jim doesn't want to disclose, how do you handle that vacuum in the information that's being released? And that's a really sensitive process to step through. It's not a difficult one. It just needs to be handled appropriately and a lot of leaders, we find to struggle with that and so they either say too much and and breach privacy or they say nothing and allow that vacuum to exist and you know what people are like we make up stuff when we don't know the truth so that can be problematic in itself um so they're they're the main reasons people come to us but what we see really strongly from the research is that it is much more important to create a positive culture of mental health and wellbeing because when we do, when we have positive mood in our staff, we have dramatically increased sales in sales-based roles, dramatically increased productivity and huge increases in creativity and innovation, which in the current economic climate is incredibly important. So we don't want to just be doing the reaction to illnesses that arise. We want to proactively build these positive cultures to get the best out of our people when they're well as well as when they're not. Do you think there's, and again, just to digress, because you you really got me thinking here, um, do you think, I know you mentioned before, um, lots of organisations say, uh, you know, this is the sort of thing of other companies and and not us. So do you think if some organisations think that maybe this isn't an issue for them, that that what could be happening is, is maybe they're just not choosing to look under the surface or or maybe they're not choosing to see the cues or the signs? Possibly, possibly. And, I mean, they might already have a really great culture where people are happy to talk about things and people are getting the help they need. But given the statistics, one in five in a year, half of us in a lifetime, you'd be a pretty unique organisation if this wasn't affecting you in some way. Mm, I think that, so, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So, so how do you know if you or your organisation aren't in a good place? I know you, you know, you've just suggested then uh, culture and, and how it feels, but I, I guess that's a very, um, and I'm not sure, is esoteric the right word? It's, it's not very tangible. It's yeah. So the sorts of things that we see in organisations that are a sign that they could be doing some work in this space, if they have high levels of stress, mm-hmm. um, so high levels of staff reporting stress that's not just the usual stress that sometimes can be good and sometimes can be a bit overwhelming, but stress that's negatively affecting performance or negatively affecting relationships or where the person doesn't feel that their coping strategies that they'd usually use are actually able to be deployed at this point. So that stress that becomes overwhelming and dysfunctional, really we should be paying attention to that because we've become a little bit laissez-faire with stress in this country where we think that, oh, stress is just the new black, everyone's got it. But what we fail to understand is that stress that's ongoing can actually be an anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental health issues we see in this country, 14.4% of us every year experiencing them. And anxiety that's not treated can then go on and lead to quite debilitating depression, which as a as a double whammy, having those co-occur is not a pleasant experience. So we need to be really mindful of stress levels and not just having a culture where stress is expected to be just part of how we roll, but that we have proactive strategies around it. Um, if you see a lot of negativity in a team, uh, so morale issues, relationships, people feeling others aren't pulling their weight, aren't, aren't putting their, their bit in, that can also be something to pay attention to. You might have stress-related workers' compensation claims, which are some of the most expensive workers' comp claims that you're going to have, generally lead to the highest time off work um, of most illnesses. You might have change afoot and so if there's people that are having difficulty or struggling with change processes or with um, preempting what change might be coming again in the current economic climate that's generally a bit of a given that there's a lot of change going in most sectors but if people are feeling overwhelmed by that distressed by that finding it difficult to get on with the job that's also another thing to pay attention to if you've got staff not meeting deadlines or issues with punctuality and attendance mm-hmm. they're all signs And then I'd bring it back to those leaders again because this is really where organisations have to meet their responsibilities of their leaders being equipped. So just check out with your leaders. Are they competent in recognising and responding to mental health issues? Are they competent with what their obligations are and how to actually put that into practice? And if they're not, then that tells you that you're needing to do some work in that area. Mm. All very good signs. And I think, you know, one of the simplest things an organisation can do... uh, based on what you're saying there is even just have a look at at the um, uh, the level of sick leave that people are experiencing and seeing whether that's got some foundation beyond a you know a cold or a flu just traveling around the business absolutely great Tasha look I know you work you know sorry you know I work in the space of productivity with technology how do you think technology has impacted on our mental health? I think it's had both some positive and some negative impacts. From a positive perspective, I've worked with clients who 
have social phobia, for example, who are now more positively connected to the outside world than what they ever had the capacity to do um, from a geographical perspective. Um, so it can be absolutely awesome. Australia is really leading the way in e-therapy. So we've got some fabulous evidence-based online therapeutic programs that people can access generally for free. Um, and these have got the validity that they're as as good or close to as good as seeing an in-person psychotherapist. Wow. Um, which is absolutely fabulous. We're in a really lucky position. We've got some fabulous clinicians and scientists really leading the way in this area. And that's awesome because if you've got someone who either because of time or financial resources or because of geography in our great vast country can't access therapy face-to-face, -face, the fact that they can get really strongly validated access online is just fabulous. So we're seeing some beautiful benefits and positives there. Um, we see some negatives as well though of course and these are probably not going to be new ideas to any of your listeners mm -hmm. but the fact that that technology can sometimes get in the way um, and add to our sense of pressure so if we allow it to be intrusive for example if we forget that our phones and our, our laptops and our ipads have off buttons then sometimes it means that every time it does a little ping we feel this sense like we have to respond to it we have to check it in and we know that, you know, I'll, I'll be in programs sometimes and I'll have someone saying, oh, at 3 o'clock I, I got up and I went to the loo and I, I read my emails and there was this message there from a client so I responded straight away and then I couldn't get back to sleep and that is just a really bad sign that at 3 o'clock in the morning you're thinking about your job unless you're on call or actually working at 3 o'clock in the morning. Not a good sign that, that technology is supporting and enhancing you. So I think that we are probably at a point where we need to start recognising what are the boundaries that are appropriate around technology and doing that personally and then also maybe putting in some some supports around that in the workplace. So having conversations with our teams about, um, you know, particularly now where we've got flexible working conditions a lot more commonplace, you might have somebody who is leaving at 3 o'clock to go home to be with their children but then their agreement is they work for two hours at night that might be fine that might be an enabling way of using the technology but if the rest of their team thinks that they also have to get home at five and then respond to those emails for those two hours at night then that may not be conducive to having good boundaries and good use of technology so you'd want to reflect on how are we using technology to enhance our work capacities and our opportunities and how is it that is actually feeling intrusive and how do we get some balance back with that and it's really simple things you can do such as when you're having meetings make sure everyone puts their phones in their bags or on the table out of reach and having an actual tech-free meeting where people are expected to sit there and engage with other humans. Because if it's not required that they have their full attention, is the meeting really required? Yes, that's a really, really good point. And um, I'm convinced that you and I could probably talk for a couple of hours around, <laughs> around <laughs> productivity with technology and, and how it impacts on, on mental health. Because I know for, for me, I've seen it in plenty of organisations that I've been working with, you know, particularly around email, the expectation that people think that they're supposed to respond as soon as something comes in because 
they haven't communicated or created a boundary or, or created their own po personal protocol about how they're going to respond or their workplace hasn't said well hey we th we want people to be more um, present when they are at work and and relaxed when they're at home so let's create some frameworks so that everybody knows what the rules are and I think what you said before one thing that you said before was around you know, um, knowing what to do. Sometimes people don't do anything because they don't want to do the wrong thing, but yeah. often by not doing anything, you, you're doing the wrong thing anyway. Absolutely. And it can just start with articulating your own personal boundaries. So saying to your team that you work with, I'm only checking emails twice a day if that's appropriate for your role or um, I'm going to have my phone switched off for the next three hours because I'm diving deep into a report that I need to write. And if it's urgent, you'll need to come to me at my desk or you'll need to ring the landline. You know, things like that that actually put some boundaries around us personally. And the ripple effect of that I've seen in teams is fabulous because as soon as one person goes, hey, I need to put some boundaries around this and it's appropriate, Others then start to take the same permission and it can become really powerful at the way it then changes our level of attentiveness, our level of productivity and our capacity to not feel so overwhelmed. I guess it's a little like social proof, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So to take that on a bit further, you know, what has this meant to us and the organisations it, it works with? And like you, you elaborated that we need to set boundaries. Um, you know, what else do you think we need to do? Because it's almost been one of those things where um, I, I think unconsciously it, it almost feels to some people like we've just woken up and we've gotten to this point. But actually this has been an evolution and it wasn't five mm. minutes in getting here. Um, so it's not going to take, you know, here are the top 10 steps to, um, you know, to becoming more productive with technology and, and keeping your sanity. Yeah, look, I think that it's about recognising when it's serving us and when isn't it. So if it's proving that it's distracting me, if it's proving that it's impacting negatively on my social connections and relationships, um, then we might want to look at how we can switch off. It can be hard to change those patterns because it has just become the new normal, but it's about taking a stand and going, this is what I need for me. Where is it serving me as a tool and where isn't it? And I do that with my team. So when we have team meetings, no one's allowed to have any technology out. We're actually there to be present with each other. We use a lot of technology as a remotely based team to, to connect with each other and to stay in contact. But we've also set the rule this year that we're to do more phone calls and less emails as a way of maintaining the connection. So we're looking at how this the technology serves us versus us being a servant to the technology. And I think that that's really possible to make those changes um, because what we know is that if we don't put boundaries around it, it's very easy to be distracted, very easy to feel on edge that you're constantly waiting for a response. There's all sorts of evidence now about people having technology anxiety disorders where they actually have a sense of attachment to the technology that they can't, they feel they can't turn it off, they feel they can't be without it. And that's a really strong sign that we need to start to feel things back a little bit. Oh, absolutely, and um, and I think you're right. Well, I, um, you know, I have commented in the media a number of times. I, I often get called in to talk about um, productivity with emails and and that sort of stuff. And I remember being on a national TV program once and being asked by the host, "So, how do I know if the tone of my email is okay?" 
And I, I paused and reflected on that question for a moment. And then I thought to myself, if you even have to ask yourself that question, you know, then that's a sure sign that instead of sending an email, you should be picking up the phone because there's all sorts of nuances that come as a result of the vocal communication that you can't get in a very one-dimensional email, can you? Absolutely, absolutely. And and we see now more and more people texting, um, not even just using emails, but they'll be texting with each other. Um, and I had a really funny example shared with me the other day where a colleague had texted a message to another colleague and it was meant to be two big thumbs up signs, but actually the other person didn't have the same emojis on their phone, so it came through as two question mark signs. And so then the second colleague writes back this big, long message about all the things that he thought they'd already agreed on. And the first colleague's then going, oh, crikey, did you not know I already understood that? And so they had this huge miscommunication just because the emojis weren't the same on both their phones. And, you know, that could easily have just been a conversation. And luckily, you know, Mike... um, uh, the guy who was sharing the example is an absolute legend at communication and as soon as he saw now there's something gone wrong, he picked up the phone and said, hey, dude, what's going on? What do we need to, to yeah. sort out here? But that could so easily have gone quite differently with you know, them reacting to misinterpretations of, of what an emoji might actually mean. Why, looping back on on that regard to something you said before about obligations of organisations, I I recall a couple of years ago there was a a cafe in Melbourne where um, a uh, a staff member was being bullied through social media and it ended up being a, um, a suicide and I, I recall uh, there being a court case. I, I can't remember what the outcome is, nor do I want to state what the outcome might have potentially been, but the, the onus came back onto the organisation for them to have um, educated their staff that you know that wasn't acceptable, and despite the fact that where it occurred would be, well, on social media, you know, where's the line in the sand? Because if, mm. if somebody's uh, harassing somebody electronically, uh, you know, I don't know, it's a little bit of a grey area, isn't it? Yeah, generally where things come down to is did the organisation have knowledge and capacity to have set up different parameters? So if we're thinking from a stress case, for example, what occurred to me when you were giving that example was, well, what about if a manager was sending text messages to staff members asking for work or sending emails to staff members expecting them to respond to outside of work hours could that reasonably be considered that it's then too much stress and too much um, expectation outside of work hours and that that could then lead to stress claims and what we'd want to be really conscious of is that we have awareness of what are the obligations of when people are working and when they aren't, awareness of what we can expect of them outside of those hours and awareness of what you can do in terms of you've got permission to turn your phone off because you're not on call or you've got permission to not respond to emails because you're not on call. And sometimes our workplaces are just a reflection of our society and I think this is another example of that, that we don't have great boundaries in the use of technology often in our wider society. So our workplaces are going to be where we might have to set some some boundaries around what's considered acceptable so that workplaces can then demonstrate, well, this was communicated to our leaders. They knew that this was not appropriate. We gave them the training and the skill development to 
to not be putting too much pressure on staff through the use of technology. And that might be, you know, a starting point for organisations to be considering. Mm. Look, Tasha, I know we're fast running out of time, but I just wanted to ask, have you got, you know, two or three different things that individuals or in organisations you could do to create a strategy to help with um, mental health? Not necessarily even just from a technology perspective, but in general terms. For sure. So personally, as individuals, I would encourage people to learn better strategies to manage stress for ourselves proactively and responsibly um, so that we can try to stop things from building up to the degree that they they often are allowed to um, and that as part of that we get help when we go mm, this is maybe a bit much this is now affecting me that we actually take that personal responsibility for looking after our own mental health and well-being and getting support for it um, from an organization perspective a really good starting point is to do an analysis of where they're at so look at their current risks look at in terms of you know workers comp claims stress leave look at um, absenteeism look at morale issues look at safety issues so often our health and safety issues implicated around times of memory and concentration lapse with things like anxiety and depression look at your processes for employment so make sure you've got non-discrimination in policies and procedures um, and that your employment staff so those who are responsible for recruitment actually understand what their obligations are there um, and then have a look at your leaders awareness so if you do a bit of a desktop analysis for the whole organization and you know look at all those stats and then actually qualitatively work with your leaders to understand what are their skills and what are their areas for development because in my experience most leaders who recognise issues want to do something about it. They just don't know how. And as an organisation, our obligation is to give them the skills to meet their leadership role requirements and mental health issues certainly comes under that. Wow, Tasha. We've, you've shared with us some great insights on how mental health can impact our own and our organisation's productivity. Um, clearly, you're an expert in this area. If, if some of our listeners just don't know where to start... Um, and they recognise the importance of this and, and want to get in contact with you to explore how you might be able to help them in their organisation, how's the best way for them to do that? Have a look at our website and see if what we offer might be a good fit for them. We have a range of public seminars occurring across Australia that people can come along to um, and we have a range of analysis and audit and policy products as well as online courses that people can purchase on online. Um, so the website is Blooming, B-L-O-O-M-I-N-G, Minds, M-I-N-D-S, so bloomingminds.com.au. Fantastic. Tasha, thanks so very much for your time today and for your insights on how mental health impacts on individual and organisational productivity. Thanks, listeners, for joining us for this Expert Insights show. For more information on our services, visit the three W's, donnahanson.com.au or the three W's, primesolutions.net.au. Until next time, this is Donna Hanson helping you work smarter and not harder with technology. Bye for now. 